Welcome to The Mountain Podcast. The Mountain Church is dedicated to helping people love Jesus and the people they encounter every day. Today, you will listen to our most recent Sunday sermon. So sit back, relax, and let Jesus speak to you wherever you may be. And now, this week's sermon. And last month we talked about family. This month we're going to talk about community. Uh, and so we have this community series that we've got going on right now. This will be the second week we're talking about it. And if you ever miss or want to hear uh, back any of the sermons, the podcast uh, posts pretty much on Monday or Tuesday for that Sunday. So you can listen to the podcast or listen to the sermons uh, back if you ever wanted to. Uh, and if you don't know how to find podcasts, we'll help you find it afterwards. Uh, if not, The MTN Church, if you already know how to find it, The MTN Church. Um, that'll get you there on Spotify or Apple, any of those platforms. And it's totally just for your aid, your benefit. And then we'll throw some conversations on there at times about different topics and things uh, for further growing and further enhancement of your journey. Uh, but today I'm actually going to be talking about community and specifically the two, the two elements, uh, one of healing and the other of forgiveness. Um, and so as a community, when we're talking about what this all looks like, last week I laid the foundation of Christ is the center of our personal journey, uh, and that extends to others, uh, especially our, and or including family. And then that goes beyond that point to community. And you see with the Good Samaritan story that there is a design that Jesus has for us that will have an effect on our neighbors. So it goes beyond. It goes beyond just our blood. It goes beyond just our personal life, and it goes to a community level, those that we have around us, those that we experience in our life, uh, those people have needs, including yourself. They have brokenness at times, which includes yourself, or they have sins they wrestle with, uh, and they're trying to find a path of repentance. Uh, so this is the, the journey that we must understand as a community. Uh, is how we relate to and how we deal with people who have places of brokenness or places that need healing and then places that need forgiveness. Uh, this community effect is one that we should all bear the responsibility and the, the wisdom to approach. And that when we know how to partner in somebody's healing journey, it's so helpful. And when we know how to partner in somebody's redemptive or forgiveness journey, being forgiven, this is as helpful, uh, if not more helpful, for their life. And so as a community, we can learn how to approach people in these places. Uh, because this is actually where the breakdown really starts to cause chaos and more damage, is when community doesn't know how to handle people who are broken or who are sinners. You guys tracking with me right now? This can cause more damage to their life, and this can actually disrupt redemptive journey uh, things that God wants to do with them. So we want to partner with God's redemptive efforts that he has with people, not disrupt it with judgment and chaos that comes from human reaction to sin patterns or brokenness. Oh, sweet. Awesome. Okay, cool. So I'm going to bring you to two stories. One's a, a story about how Jesus approached the paralytic man or the paralyzed man. And the other is a story of how Jesus approached and or dealt with the blind man. And so if you turn your Bibles, or if you open the app and click a few buttons, go with me to Mark 2, 3 through 12, and it says, <coughs> excuse me, and it says, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Some of you may have heard the story. It's the story of them lowering the paralyzed man before Jesus to be healed, 
But I want you to take notice for something here. There is no name here. His identity to everybody else is the paralytic man. And this is the first point I want to make is that we have to be careful not to identify somebody as their brokenness. We've got to be careful not to identify somebody as their struggle or as their sin. This is a human tendency where we're like, oh, this is the most obvious thing about the person. They can't walk. Thus, they are the that can't walk man. Are you guys tracking with me? And so when community becomes aware of somebody's vices, brokenness, or inabilities, we have the tendency to then know them by that. Oh, it's that one person that struggles with that one thing. It's that one person that cusses a lot. It's that one person that's angry. It's that alcoholic. Oh, it's that. And we start to understand or see them in the framework of their brokenness. But we got to be really careful about this approach because it's hard to move on from that even if the person has. It becomes like a tattoo. It becomes like an A, adulterous woman in the community, a scarlet letter of sorts. And so when it says carried by four men, you see actually what is really beautiful about this four men is they begin to engage with the paralytic man in a way that is, that is attempting to change this scenario in his life. And so they bring him to Jesus. And when they bring him to Jesus, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, so this is pretty cool. What is the community's role in people's lives? It's to bring them to Jesus so they can be healed and forgiven. Bring them to Jesus. It is not your role to heal, and it is not your role to forgive. It is your role to try and make a connection between people and Jesus. If you take on the healer role, you're taking on a role that wasn't designed for you, and you'll be stressed, you'll be anxious, and you'll continually spiral in failure because you're going to be incapable as the healer. That's Jesus' role. Now, he can heal through you, you can bring people to a place where they encounter his healing, but even if you lay hands on the sick and they get healed, that's a result of Jesus or God in you, not a result of your humanity. Okay, so when we're dealing with people, we're bringing them to Jesus, and sometimes that means that we literally bring them to Jesus. And sometimes it means that in Jesus inside of us, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we bring to them. But either way, our role in community with those who need healing is to close the gap. Close the gap. So if you see somebody and they're, they're just absolutely wandering about in their life and you're connected to them and you know, you know they're disconnected from Jesus, ask yourself simple questions in their healing and forgiveness journey, which is how can I bring them Jesus? Or how can I bring them to Jesus? And it's going to look different for each person. For this partnership, it looked like actually getting his bed and actually getting others to help. Maybe it was one guy's idea, and he's like, hey, I need some help. I can't bring this guy to Jesus on my own. I need help. And I've started to actually recruit people to help me with people that I'm trying to bring to Jesus. And it's actually a lot more fun, and it's a lot more enjoyable. And the, the basic truth of the matter is, is some people need so much aid, partnership, and help that it takes more than two hands. It takes more than my two hands. It takes... In this situation, it was eight hands. It was eight capable bodies to bring somebody to Jesus. So one, you got to know where Jesus is if you're going to bring somebody to Jesus. You got to know where he is. This is why it's so important that foundation is individual. You are connected to Jesus. 
You got to know where he is if you're going to bring somebody to him. And if you're bringing somebody to him, you're bringing them as they are. Paralyzed, broke, sinners, sinning. You're bringing them as they are because the beautiful thing about Jesus is when you bring somebody to Jesus, Jesus knows what to do. These men brought him with a certain objective in mind says, we're going to bring this man to Jesus so he can be healed. The obvious need of his life. But here's what's really great about Jesus is that he's got higher ways of thinking and perceiving and knowing. So not only does he know that this man needs to be healed, he knows that this man needs to receive forgiveness. It's the invisible miracle that needed to take place for this man's life. It's the, it's the amazing thing that Jesus knew. Priority is not to heal this man, it's to forgive this man. How cool is that? You come thinking you need this, and you may need this, but Jesus can see what your greatest need is as well. So this man needed to be able to walk, but also this man needed to be forgiven. Forgiven, that's powerful. And he needed Jesus to be able to say it, right? Because you can say all day long, he was forgiven, God forgives him. You can say all day long these ideas of a thing, but when you actually meet Jesus, and you actually hear Jesus say, you're forgiven. This has an effect on your life. This has an effect on the way you see yourself. This has an effect on the way you see everybody else. So this is what we're doing is we're trying to destroy the works of sin in people's life. And sometimes as people who sin, we start to think of ourselves as sinners. And this identity starts to latch on to us. So we see two identity struggles in this man right away that need to be broken, which is this identity that he is a paralytic that he is a paralyzed man, and this other identity that needs to be confronted and broken in that he is a sinner. How powerful it is that Jesus right away goes, okay, we're going to destroy this effect of sin in your life. You are forgiven. Sin and its effect in your life has just been abolished, demolished, and sent away, destroyed. It's over. And this is important that we understand how to do this in community because Jesus, the pivot point from a person being a sinner and a paralytic to a person being forgiven and capable of walking is an instant. Is an instant, but community is slow sometimes to make that adjustment on how they see people. Somebody can get saved, somebody can get healed, somebody can get delivered, somebody can be absolutely in it with Jesus, and their sins are forgiven, and community sits back and waits. Waits to see what we should do about it. How Let's see if this is real. You ever see change start to happen in somebody's life and you just sit back to wait and see if it's true or not? Here's the challenge. I'm not saying that we trust people with our social security number just because they show a, a, a slight turn in a moment or something like that. But what I am saying is that if you sit back as the skeptic, you may be absolutely missing what God wants you to do in their life to advance the growth, to advance the healing. So a person who sits back as a skeptic and as just a spectator plays no role of securing a healing or securing a salvation or securing discipleship and transformation that's supposed to happen in the next phase. Skeptics and spectators do not advance the narrative of Jesus in people's life. Hop into that person's life. If they're around you and they're your neighbor, advance the healing. Secure it. Give them scriptures that that confirm the thing, give them scriptures that confirm their salvation. Advance the narrative of salvation. Don't sit back and wait to see if it's real. Maybe it will be real if you engage. 
Maybe it'll be real if you bring your part. Maybe it will be more real if you actually bring Jesus to the thing. And maybe they'll lose hope in their infancy as a Christian if somebody doesn't help. Like, what do we do when we see a baby abandoned? If you just walk by and go, well, let's see if that baby's going to do the right thing. The baby might, might certainly die if somebody doesn't come along and provide aid. So when somebody enters into the courts, enters into heaven for the first time in salvation, I, I accept Jesus into my life and he healed me. If we just sit back and wait, we might be just sitting back and waiting for a baby to be able to walk and feed itself. We've got to be careful not to be spectators and skeptics in this thing. We've got to be careful not to just keep seeing people as paralytics and as sinners when Jesus has healed them and saved them. Okay, so why does this man speak like that? So now some of the, so your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We never saw anything like this. A community is meant to heal. A community is meant to forgive. A community has a design to be able to partner with the narrative of what Jesus is doing, not with the narrative of what somebody's history is. And this is where we got to make the pivot. Because oftentimes we define our approach with somebody based on their history. But this is rooted in humanity. And in a lot of ways, I know that we can defend it as logical and rational. I totally get that. But, but what's important here is that we move away from treating and approaching people that is completely and holistically defined by their history, and we move to a place of treating and partnering with people according to the design of how Jesus is. That's why I said, in order for you to bring somebody to Jesus, you got to know where he is. you got to know what he's thinking. you got to know how he acts. you got to know what his attitude's like towards paralyzed people, towards broken people, towards sinners. You've got to know what his attitude is. You've got to know how he thinks. And if you don't know how he thinks, ask him. Ask him. And if you say, hey, I don't even know how to talk to Jesus. Well, then, okay, let's talk about what it looks like for you to talk to Jesus. So now what's great is that community and their problems or the people with their sinning problems and their paralyzed problems has actually just provoked you to grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. How good is that? Like our growth with Jesus is connected to people. And sometimes problematic people in community are meant to be your greatest agents of provoking you to deeper intimacy with Jesus. That's why I, I get kind of excited when somebody finds somebody that they hate in community. I'm like, good, look, you found hate. You found hate in yourself, now grow in love. Well, they got this problem, that problem, and those all might be true. Those all might be true. When they threw the adulterous woman before Jesus, they weren't wrong about her. They weren't wrong about her sins. They weren't wrong about her deeds or her reputation or her toxicity in community. They weren't wrong. 
but they were wrong about the conclusion they had. Let's kill her rather than redeem her. So this is the difference, right? You may be right, but if you find hate, unforgiveness, and bitterness in your heart, you've found a growth point for you. And that's a period at the end of that sentence. That's a generalization that we can make, and it's so good, right? Even if they're wrong, if you can't love them, you got to grow. Okay, cool, awesome. I think we made the point well enough. John 9, 1 through 41. We're probably not going to hit all this because that's 40 verses. But this is a story about Jesus' approach with the blind man. And again, we see a really cool start to this because he doesn't get a name. He's also identified as his problem. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Blind from birth. So we got a blind man, and, uh, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Okay, so a couple of points here. He was blind from birth, and, and people had this concern about sin in his life. So we see this pattern of how people are with people, that when they see brokenness, they also then have questions about sin. They have questions about sin and its effect, right? Which these are questions in our heart whether or not we communicate them or not. We ask questions like, okay, so if that person keeps sinning, I have to forgive them, but there's got to be some kind of consequence here, right? There's got to be some kind of ecosystem here where they're going to reap what they sow, right? So whether we verbalize it or not, we have questions about people's brokenness, sin, and the consequences they ought to experience. Justice and mercy questions come to us a lot. We just don't necessarily label it that problem. But if you really look closely, you probably have questions for God about what injustices are happening. Where is God's justice? Why is he giving mercy to them? If you look really closely, you'll have questions about these things. I have them all the time. Okay, God, what about this? What about that? One thing I've learned to trust is that God is perfect in justice and perfect in mercy. And I don't have a perfect concept of justice and mercy. I can tell you scripturally what it means. I can quote scriptures. I can tell you the whole dynamic. But I can say for sure I'm growing to understand justice and mercy the way God understands justice and mercy. So when we see a person in community and we see their brokenness, we see they're blind, they're incapable, when we see these things, whether it be spiritually, emotionally, whatever it may be, when we see this and then we start to have questions about, hey, why did, how did you get here? How did you get to this broken place? Is it a result of sin? Is it a result of your sins or your granddaddy's sins or your great-granddaddy's sins? What is it a result of who did something wrong? Who broke the thing? 
And this is a part of the conversation because Jesus approaches tons of people and heals tons of people. And we see this connection that Jesus has to healing people and to forgiving them of their sins. They're both really, really powerful things in community. They're powerful things for us to understand how to bring people to Jesus in forgiveness and bring people to Jesus in healing. So you and I should both be tracking with the people around us how is God healing them and how is God breaking the power of sin in their life. These are two patterns that I want people tracking with me, partnering with me on. I want community partnering with me on this. I want community to learn what it looks like to partner with one another on these things because we can't really lie to ourselves and say we're a perfect community. We're just not. So the answer isn't perfection. The answer is understanding what to do with the imperfections. The answer isn't, hey, how can we get to a whole place and never get broke again? Because we introduce one new member with one new vice, and we're imperfect all over again. One person lies because they were scared. One person gossips because they were mad. One person hates because of the thing that was happening to them. One person doesn't forgive. We're imperfect right off. That quick. That quick. So the question isn't about perfection. The question is about what to do with our imperfections, what to do with our vices, what to do with our brokenness, what to do with our sins. So the effect of Jesus is that he takes sins, and in Isaiah 1, it says it really well. It says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So Jesus has this effect on sin that he blots it out. He wipes it out. And this is a powerful thing to understand about Jesus. I can't wipe out somebody's sin in community. When somebody does a thing, it's a thing. And it can cause damage. It can cause chaos. And I have no power to stop it. I didn't do the sin. I didn't do the chaos that come out, comes after the sin. I didn't, I didn't do any of that. It's not my responsibility to punish it. It's not my responsibility even to forgive it or to redeem it, especially when it didn't happen to me. So this is the role of Jesus, and Jesus has a really powerful instantaneous effect on sin if somebody is willing to receive it. That the blood of Jesus makes us white as snow. This is instantaneous, and this is sometimes really frustrating to those of us that desire justice or some kind of consequence to sin. The blood of Jesus isn't going to be fair if you are rooted in hate and unforgiveness. The blood of Jesus is going to wipe out sin and its effect on somebody's life. That's powerful. That's really amazing. And in a lot of senses, you're going to feel like somebody got away with a thing. Because what's really cool is that we all are undeserving of the blood of Jesus. We're all undeserving of it. So if you really wanted to say it, we're all getting away with the thing. The cost and the penalty of sin is death. The blood of Jesus redeems us from that true penalty. And so how do we apply this blood of Jesus in community? How do we apply this wild notion of the blood of Jesus in community? Well, simple. Jesus' blood wipes out sin. It begins to coach you on how you should approach people's sin. And you can say, I'm not Jesus, right? That whole line, like, well, I'm not Jesus. <laughs> but you are called to his likeness. 
you are called to hosting the Holy Spirit inside of you. He'll teach you to forgive. He'll teach you to release things you never thought you could release. He'll teach you to forgive in a way you never thought you could forgive. And you can begin to treat people who have wronged you with the kind of love that Jesus treated you with or Heavenly Father treated you with when he sent his son while we were still sinners. So now we begin to see Jesus and Heavenly Father uh, modeling an approach. And it is a daunting approach. It is a lofty approach, but it's one worth pursuing. So rather than condemning somebody for their sin and infractions, introducing them to Jesus so they can be forgiven, rather than (laughs) tattooing somebody as uh, the identity of whatever their struggle is, blind man, paralyzed man, rather than making that somebody's community identity and reputation, you begin to partner with them on a healing, restoring journey. And I, look, this is, as, this is so much in the responsibility of the individual. To my frustration, this is in the responsibility of the individual. We aren't responsible to heal somebody and or to save somebody. We're responsible to encourage, exhort, provoke, impact, influence, but we are not responsible to do the thing, right? So we can sow, we can water, we can even harvest, but we cannot cause growth. That much is so biblically, factually true. We are not the ones to cause growth. We can play a role that may cause growth, but you can water a thing and see it never grow. I'll tell you, like I I had this one lime, well, it's a lemon tree. Oh, she's she's over there. It was a lemon tree, right? We thought it was a lime tree, and then my sister says it was a lemon, and we didn't believe her for a while. She was right. So we had this lemon tree, and one of them, we had two of them in the backyard. One of them just grew. 50 lemons a, a, a year or a season, whatever the seasons are that they do that thing where they make lemons, we had like 50 plus. The other one, not one lemon ever, ever. And it stayed the same kind of like five foot by five foot size the entire eight years we were there. So finally I was like, let's cut it down. We cut the thing down and now it's growing. There was one little thing left in the ground, apparently, and there was no water source anymore. But now, now somehow, this thing wants to grow and become a lemon tree. So you can water a thing year after year and see zero growth. You can. How many people have you watered their life? Have you pulled weeds in their life? And you see zero growth. And maybe it even just gets worse. Somehow weeds just pop up more and more and more. And it's like, this thing never grows, man. What's going on? The only growth that it has is weed growth. So this is not our responsibility. So when we're partnering with people who are blind and paralyzed, our journey as a community, we have to confront some things. And the thing we have to confront, baseline, is our unbelief. So verse 8 gets into this, and it says, The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, this is, this is history, identity of the blind man. They had seen him as a beggar. We're saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. 
I like this line because you could read it different ways and it comes out different. Like, guys, I'm the man. Or like, I'm the man. You know what I mean? I already thought about this. I would have said, I'm the man if I was him. So he said, I am the man. He's like, guys, what's the confusion here? I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. I love this guy. He's very, very linear. He's very line by line what happens. This would work in a courtroom. Here's what happened. Mud, eyes, water, I see now. It's perfect. He received his sight. And uh, in verse 12, they said, then, then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. I love this part, this verse, because it's kind of funny and ironic. Because they could actually ask him, where is he? Just before Jesus healed him of blindness, if they asked him, where is he? That's a stupid question to ask a blind person. But now he's been healed, so now he could actually field successfully this question of help me locate that man that healed you. That's a new skill. How cool is that? Like he didn't have that skill before Jesus healed him. And you got to see this about people. They're going to have skills after Jesus heals them that they didn't have when they were broken. They're going to be able to see things they never saw before. You thought they were dense and dumb before. But then Jesus heals them and all of a sudden they appear intellectual or they appear emotionally sound. And they can communicate better than just... They can communicate more more robustly in fuller emotional ranges as a man and not just stay emotionally caveman-ish. When Jesus heals you, you're actually able to get in touch with things in a sound way. So all of these things we subscribe to different people based on gifts or gender in terms of the wholeness of what Jesus wants to do in people's lives, it is not contained to a race or a gender. It is not contained to a history. So whatever you subscribe to a man, whether it be toughness or things like that, you meet Jesus, he starts to heal you. You actually learn to be emotionally intelligent. And maybe you subscribe emotional intelligence to women, and, but not so much toughness or something like that, which is crazy to me. But maybe that's how you think. When they meet Jesus, when somebody meets Jesus, it doesn't just allow you to be emotionally intelligent. It allows you to have perseverance. It allows you to have long suffering. So whatever you think about how you were born or designed, when you meet Jesus, he introduces the fullness of his characteristics to your life. The fullness, guys. The fullness. Don't tell me about who your parents were unless that's who you'll be. Don't tell me about that as your potential. You can tell me about that as a starting point, but don't tell me that's the design Jesus has for you. It's the identity of Jesus in your life, and you got to wrestle with the doubt that says you can't be like Jesus. you got to wrestle with that. You gotta fight that thing tooth and nail, and you gotta say to that thing that says you can't be like Jesus, you'll only ever be like your alcoholic uncle, or an abusive father, or your lying granddaddy, or your cheating grandma. You gotta, you gotta fight that thing that says you'll always be that thing that was cursed and broken. Was his dad a sinner? Was his mom a sinner? Was he a sinner? Jesus like, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even matter. I'm going to heal him. I'm going to forgive him. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. 
Okay, so your sins are like scarlet. The blood of Jesus still has an effect on the tapestry of your life. How bad are your sins? What's your resume of sins? What's your resume of brokenness? How much damage have you done? Show Jesus the ledger. Show him the real ledger. Show him the real ledger and allow Jesus to wipe it out. To wipe it out. Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now here's an identity shift that's starting to happen. Blind man. Well, now what do we say about him? Well, now we do know that he can see, so we'll just call him formally blind. But the way community <laughs> relates to a person now even just defines him by what his brokenness used to be. Well, he used to be the alcoholic. He used to be the cheater. He used to be the man that was always angry. He used to be the insecure woman. He used to be. So this is how community without a perspective of Jesus, treats people. You're forever tied to that thing. You're ever tethered to that thing. So Jesus starts to do an even greater work, and this thing starts to evolve even more. They brought him to this place. So the Pharisees again asked him, hey, how did you receive this sight? And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Again, I love this guy. He's just like boom, boom, boom. This man, mud, see. This man, mud, see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? So they go on to argue a bit here, yeah? About things that frankly don't matter. And then in verse 22, his parents said these things, which is, hey, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Okay, so here's a really interesting part. You've got the community that believes in what Jesus wants to do. Let's call them the disciples. Believes in the effect of Jesus. And then you've got religious folks that refuse to believe in the ability of Jesus. They can only see, they can only understand that which can be achieved through humans' capabilities. So it's no wonder they can't see a seeing man and a forgiven man. It's no wonder they can't see that man because human beings in their religious power can't do that. So now they're being asked to recalibrate the way they see a person based on non-human standards. And they can't do that because that means they have to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because not only did he heal the man, he forgave the man. Not only did he do this, like he literally engaged in power that was so beyond their human understanding. It was going to require a confession and a believing in them that was powerful. So they have to call them all liars. They have to alienate them. They have to stop being friends with them. They have to kick them out of their synagogues. They have to kick them out of their, their groups, their book clubs. they got to kick them out of these things. Jesus can become a problem to non-believing people. Your life gets changed in such a supernatural way, it starts to become a problem. It starts to become a problem to those who don't believe in Jesus and his power and his ability in someone's life. In verse 23, it says, Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man. He goes, All right, we know he's a sinner. Verse 25, he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, let's go through the facts again. 
Though I was blind, now I see. Simple fact. I was blind, now I see. I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? So here's what's really cool. If you're the person that's changed and no one believes you, you're going to go from fielding questions of doubt to becoming a preacher. You're going to go from fielding questions of unbelief to being a person that starts to provoke belief in others around you. You're going to say things like, you just keep asking me this question. You don't believe me. So it's going to register in your head that there's unbelief around you. So how you begin to relate to those people is going to be really, really important. So what I like about what this formerly blind person did, this seeing person did, is that he actually began to preach and testify and witness about Jesus. So rather than him getting mad at community for not believing him, because this can happen. You start changing, you start getting mad. No one believes me, man. Everyone thinks I'm just this that I was, but I'm not. And you can start to cultivate resentment because you're being judged. You can start to be mad at church because church just doesn't get it yet about you. You've changed. Or maybe you start to then uh, start to despise your spouse because they have experienced you in former ways. You say you've changed. Maybe you've really changed, but they don't believe you yet. So rather than getting resentful about the people who haven't bought into your change yet, start to talk about what Jesus has done and focus on Jesus, not their judgment and not their unbelief. Because if you start, if you start to allow yourself to be defined, your behavior to be defined by unbelief, you are now being shaped by doubt and unbelief rather than Jesus. So if somebody comes to me in unbelief and is like, I don't believe you, this, that, and the other. I don't really mean to react and to respond to that statement of unbelief if I don't want to. Because if it's objectively false, I bear no responsibility to say anything. And if I do say something, it'll be with an objective to introduce them to Jesus. Because now I've become the person that community was always supposed to be. I'm going to become the person that's connecting them to Jesus. And read what he says here. I think this is so cool. He went from a blind man to a preacher in a day. And they reveled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Here's really cool. This is where the man, the formerly blind man, currently seeing man, starts to become a preacher. He says, oh, man, the man answered. He says, why, this is an amazing thing, exclamation point. The same way I text people. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Woo! They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. 
They cast him out. This is reverse demon casting out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And actually, in some translations, it's the Son of God, which I actually like more because it makes more sense to me that he would say, do you believe in the Son of God rather than the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he? This is the the formerly blind man, currently now a preacher and a testifier of the goodness of God, being asked, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Who is the Son of God you speak of so I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So we have this very quick transformation identity shift that takes place. A man who is a beggar, a blind man, and in reputation, a sinner, or at least from a family line of sinners. And Jesus, because of work he did in his life, has made him a forgiven person, saved person, has made him a seeing person, and has made him a preacher or a testifier, has made him a worshiper. In one day, all these things happen. In one day, all these things happen. So, so in community, what's possible? In a Christian church, God-fearing, God-loving community, what's possible? What's possible is that somebody can meet somebody, somebody can meet Jesus here. And all of these things can happen in one day. That's what's possible. I've also seen that somebody goes to church for six years, and there's a process. And that's beautiful. Like, it's not up to me to define how somebody grows the pace they grow at. It's really not up to me. So in a moment, an incident can happen, great, awesome, that's beautiful. We can labor together in community for an individual's life year after year after year after year and then see really substantial growth things happen in their life. Awesome. I mean, I didn't really, really start following and loving Jesus until I was like 18 plus years old. I grew up in church. That's 18 years of a thing. 18 years. 18. So we can't define timelines and we can't allow our hope to shift because humans are acting like humans. They haven't grown with Jesus yet in the ways that we think they can. And so we can't allow ourselves to root our hopefulness in the outcome of somebody's life. We hope in Christ. That's where our hope lies. So, like, I don't hope somebody changes, right? And this is where the hope line really gets clear for me. So I don't hope somebody treats me right. So my hope is in Jesus. I trust according to wisdom, and I love and I forgive in an unconditional way, or at least I try to. So my hope is in Jesus, not people. So it's not, you you, you can still love somebody even if you don't trust them. You could still love somebody and forgive somebody even if you understand that they're not trustworthy. So, like, hey, I hope you pay me back, right? So this idea of putting your hope in a person, if you know this person to not be good with money and to not pay people back, why are you placing your hope there? Does this make sense? Why are you placing your hope there? Just give it. At one point I did this, I I, I lent somebody a small amount of money. 
And I always learned that don't lend somebody money unless you're willing to never see it again, right? Oh, I got a big amen on that one. <laughs> we got some experience here. We got some history. And I, and I, I was like, you know, at one, it was like 100 bucks. It was, it was whatever. And so at one point, I was just like, you know what? This is actually becoming a thing where, like, this person doesn't want to see me. They're ashamed. They're kind of like, oh, my goodness. You know, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to bless them. So I call them up one day. I'm like, hey, man, listen, just, dude, I give you the money. I give it to you, bro. Like, I, I release you from your debt. You know, Gandalf that thing. <clears throat> because, because I understood something about the person that, look, this is his pattern. This is his tendency. So, so I'm not going to hope right, in this situation in relationship that he changes, he does something different. I can encourage him. I can edify him. I can love on him. I can confront him. I can do all of these things, but I'm not going to put my hope in him. Are you guys tracking with me on this thing? So when we have people in our lives in community, when we partner with their healing, when we're partnering with their healing journey, we're bringing them to Jesus. When we're partnering with their sin patterns or the sin in their life, we're bringing them to Jesus. It's not my job to forgive someone's sins in their life. It's my job to forgive them if it happens to me. But it's not my job to give them forgiveness for a thing they've done somewhere else unrelated to me. See, this is Jesus' role in their life. He forgives them of their sins. To introduce them to Jesus. And if they're broken, if they need healing, if they're paralyzed and they're blind, bring them to Jesus. Sometimes you're carrying Jesus inside of you and you're like, I'm going to bring Jesus to you. There's so many examples in the word of this, leaving the 99 sheep, going to the one sheep. You're bringing Jesus to somebody at that point. Where can Jesus go? <laughs> anywhere. Anywhere. And anywhere you go, you can bring Jesus. It's pretty cool. So my, my encouragement today is to identify the people in your life. What is their healing journey look like? Like, what's God healing them from? And how are you helping? How are you helping? How are you being an aid to that? How are you giving courage in that journey? What, what are you doing? And it may be for many of you that you're, you're not skilled in emotional healing and training. You don't have giftingness in those things uh, or physical. So, so it may be for some of you that your aid is to connect them to somebody who has real soundness in them, real giftedness in them, real skill in them for these things. But you're still helping them. See, these guys that brought the paralyzed man to Jesus, none of them had the skill to heal his paralysis. None of them had the skill to forgive him of his sins. So they brought him to somebody who does. So you may have very little ability spiritually but you just may have a good sense of when people really need to be healed and forgiven. Find somebody. Find experts, authors, wonderful people. Find people that know how to partner well. Or just go, hey, look, I don't know if you're willing to do this. I don't have a lot of answers for you, but I know Jesus has had a ton for me. So why don't you try asking him and just introduce him? Or maybe get the courage and pray for him. Pray for him. Oh, what if they don't get healed? It's not your responsibility. It's not your responsibility. Can you stand with me? We're going to finish.